Hello and welcome back to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast with me, Kim McCall. After a hiatus, I'm looking forward to bringing you some more interesting conversations in 2023. Episode 54 will kick the year off with a returning guest in Colm Holland. I spoke with Colm on episode 38 in 2020 about his book, The Secret of the Alchemist. If you listened to that episode, you may recall that I had some hesitation about speaking with Colm then because of my misgivings about Christianity, a religion that shaped Colm's early life and I found still echoed in his book. In the end, I was glad to have had a really interesting conversation with Colm about his fascinating life tra- trajectory and his move from church-based Christianity to the study of alchemy and Jungian psychology to guide his life path. It seems only fitting that Colm has now introduced me to a book he has edited on behalf of the deceased author Jeff Roberts that questions the very foundations of the Christian origin story. No matter where you stand on the story of Jesus, whether you believe in the historical character, believe that there is a spiritual Christ, or agree with Jeff Roberts that the entire story was plagiarized from other existing stories, or something in between, there is no denying that few narratives have shaped human history and consciousness as dramatically as the story of Christianity. Even if you are an atheist, a Muslim or a Buddhist, in one way or another, Christianity will have impacted you. Our calendars and global festivities are shaped around alleged life events of Jesus Christ, and the world's preeminent superpower prides itself on being a Christian nation, a concept that clearly means different things to different people. So I think understanding the historic origins of Christianity is an extremely valuable pursuit. One question I find intriguing is why it is Jesus of Nazareth, and not someone like his much better documented contemporary Apollonius of Tiana, who has ended up becoming the figurehead of this world-defining cult. What is it about this story that has led it to shape the minds and cultures of billions of consciousnesses over the past two millennia? Could it be true that our history has been shaped entirely by a fiction? This is a question we explore in this conversation. And just a note on something I omitted to clarify during the interview, Colm occasionally references Q. Because in recent years the letter Q has come to be associated in much public discourse with the QAnon movement, it is worth pointing out that in biblical studies the letter Q is derived from the German word Quelle, for source. That is, it relates to the original source of information. Having clarified that, it is also fun to point out that the foundations of Christianity and QAnon actually share quite a few qualitative parallels. But that is a whole other topic. For now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Colm Holland. It's interesting to me that we're recording today, Colm, because I, on my last trip to Europe, uh, I visited the Museum of the Free Mind in Amsterdam. Are you familiar oh, with that? I don't know it. Oh, yeah, no, I've never been. Well, you should definitely check it out because its, it's focus yeah. is alchemy. Uh, and it, it, um, oh, okay. Fantastic. Focuses on um, a number of uh, European alchemists in its display. They have an alchemical garden 
out the back and it's right in the heart of Amsterdam. So it's this real oasis um, of sort of tranquil, you know, really tranquil space and uh, great library, great resource there. Oh, marvelous! Um, I've just googled it. Yeah, amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty bad that I've missed it all this time. <laughs> well, I, I'm really hoping. I've been trying to line up an interview with someone from, from the museum for a, since I've been there because uh, I just thought it was such a great space, mm. and I, I think a lot of people listening to my podcast would be interested in visiting it. You know, if they're in Amsterdam, mm. um, or even making a trip there, and. Um, and so I'm hoping to be speaking with the librarian at the end of the month. And then you contacted me <laughs> um, to talk about a somewhat different angle, but really it's all connected, right? Like uh, I think when we get into the story of the book um, that you are, uh, you know, discuss that we're going to discuss today about um, the Jesus myth. Um, yes. Is there is um, it the thing I that I enjoy about that book is how it highlights the interrelationship of all these ancient um, traditions, mm. how they all inform each other, and yes. um, how we are really, in a sense, dealing with a religion now that is grown out of an old arguably old shamanic tradition that has become codified and regimented and over the you know millennia turned into um a doctrine used for political ends used for all kinds of ends in many different ways yeah, around yeah, the world yeah. yeah and uh yeah and alchemy is obviously woven into that story as well in in different ways so yeah, it was a in, quite com in a quite a complex way, um, and we can talk about um, alchemy as the antipathy of Christianity, for, certainly from the point of view of Professor Carl Jung. Um, so yeah, we definitely want uh, that's not in the book, by the way, but uh, something it's definitely something that I've been studying and thinking a lot about. Uh, in recent times too so yeah that, that's another in do, do you want me to mention the book yes please <clears throat> okay <laughs> um it's called the true origins of jesus and uh, the myth behind the man and it's actually it was written uh, 10 years ago by a guy called jeff roberts and uh, an english uh, reporter newspaper reporter uh, an invested journalist who um, had no particular religious leanings himself. Um, he was just, he just became fascinated with um, the uh, juxtaposition, as he saw it, of uh, modern Christianity, mainstream Christianity, and the actual reality of the New Testament and how. Um, these things seem actually <laughs> opposed to each other, um, and that anybody who who began who had begun a even a simplistic um, review or research into the origins of, of Christianity and particularly the, the New Testament itself, um, anybody who had ever written about it had very quickly come to the conclusion 
that um, it was extremely difficult to base anything um, on within Christian doctrine on historical fact. And that um, the reason he felt that was a juxtaposition is that, you know, you have the modern church saying there really was a person, persona called Jesus, um, that he lived approximately 2,000 years ago in Galilee, in Palestine, um, a lot of activity around Jerusalem, and that uh, he uh, was a wise guy who performed miracles and a, and a religion flowed out of, of his existence and that this was all very original and um, unique in some way. And he gathered around his disciples who furthered the word and went around the world. And, and there was other characters who came into play, a guy called St. Paul, for example, who had his own vision of Jesus independently of the disciples and how this grew up into the church that became the Roman church uh, around about 300 uh, AD, uh, uh, BE or uh, common era or whatever, whatever we want to call it. And, and how this was just all, you know, taken uh, for granted. And then during the sort of the hippie period of the 1970s, you had a, a revival of another sort of form of, of, of uh, uh, sort of attitude and belief in, in Christ uh, and in the person of Jesus in particular, which was that, well, maybe not everything in the Bible is necessarily factually true, but there really was a guy. Um, there was a sort of a hippie kind of guy called, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, the man. And, and if, if I remember correctly, that was the sort of Christian uh, movement that you were influenced by. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hands yeah. up. I'll put my hand up for that. You know, there mm -hmm. was a guy. He was a really cool guy. And um, he was very um, influential uh, during the 1970s where, you know, make peace, not war, man, and uh, love your neighbor, do good to your enemies and so on and so on. Um, all, all good stuff. Uh, but it was all, all of this um, in, in our thinking and in our culture and in, in our uh, assumptions, even whether we're in the church or, or not in the church or whether we've had any religious schooling or not, there is this basic assumption that there really was this guy called Jesus. And that for that reason, we should take notice or give it some credence or, or become completely devoted to it and allow it to uh, the doctrines that have grown up around the various forms of the church over millennia, the last couple of millennia in various cultures, you know, should dominate our lives. What Jeff Roberts did was he said, well, was, what historical evidence actually is there? to support this notion that there actually was a guy. There was this person called Jesus Christ. And, the, and the, did, he, did he live, you know, when did he live? Uh, did he actually exist? Um, what, um, I mean, for, for most other religions, there are, there is almost always um, other third party uh, semi or academic, uh, semi-academic um, authoritative um, writings, historical uh, sources that you can go to to corroborate with, you know, the the, the teaching of, of a particular religion. What he discovered, of course, um, which is totally true, uh, is that in the case of Jesus, these don't exist. 
And and what he does, I mean, I suppose just to say, my sense is from reading his book that he discovered this by looking at existing scholarship. I I don't get the sense from you know the book itself is not uh, what I would describe as an academic book. No, but, deliberately but not. So, it's yeah. it's very um, accessible um, for my academic mind. Sometimes I I would like more detail. Yeah. But he, yeah. ad- he he identifies various scholars that he relies on in turn, right? Biblical yeah. scholars. Um, it's what I call a Regis Digest version of, yeah. of of the research. But the but the people that he lent on the people uh, m- the multiple sources that he refers to, extremely academic and um, written volumes in some cases, and highly regarded even amongst theolo- you know theological circles. And yeah. So I think. Um, the premi- the reason I wanted to republish this book, so I edited the book, I improved the references and I got rid of, of some uh, bits and pieces that just really didn't add to the argument, as it were. So the argument really that Jeff is putting forward is that until you, me as an individual, uh, until we've actually um, brought to the Christian faith and, and beliefs um, the same rigor, even even as you know, semi semi academic rigor of, of questioning, you know. So, is, did he really do this, and did he re- did this really happen, and was he really born of a virgin, and and, and so on, and, and start to sift um, the potential factual elements from the theological elements that have a a, a, a different purpose. Um, what are we left with? And um, I think the shock for Jeff was that historically, factually, we're left with nothing at all. And I think I think that was a genuine shock. I think he thought there would be some Roman sources contemporary to the the period of Christ and others um, that would have substantiated at least some basic facts. Um, but even the census that brought um the the holy family uh, jesus's mother and, and and joseph down to bethlehem um even, even that can't be supported factually um the 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 whole concept of I mean, if you just keep stick with the nativity for a moment um, the whole concept of king herod slaughter you know ordering the slaughter of the firstborn and so on and the fleeing of jesus to egypt and so on, you'd think there would be some documentation external from the new testament versions it's not in all of the gospels of course but no not at all um non-existent i mean i guess Um, as a as a non um like i don't know i've never you know having never looked at the historic records of that era yeah um uh, i don't even know i wouldn't have made that assumption necessarily that there are records because i don't know what kind of records there are you know are there, Lots, plenty. Are there records yeah. from around that era then you would go? Oh, okay, that, hmm? absolutely. I mean, yes, if you were um, an Egyptian scholar, you I mean, you can read divorce, legal divorce documents from, you know, a thousand, two thousand years prior. I mean, this was we, we assume that there was sort of the dark ages of no historical records and, and until, you know, the last fifteen hundred years or something. And not so. No, not at all. I mean, ancient scholars of ancient history are using plenty of original documentation of this period, um, particularly Roman, particularly Greek, uh, Egyptian. Um, so to not have any ability to cross-reference with any of that documentation um, 
leaves left Jeff asking the question then what else is of theological origin to serve the purposes of religious belief rather than factual belief and and he very firmly the you know when you read the book you you realize that um, he came to the conclusion along with with many many learned scholars in recent years last hundred years or so um, that the, the majority of the what we call the New Testament is a theological construct in other words the um, the stories um, they that we um, sort of assume have an historical basis to them um, have more of a mythological basis to them um, and one of the things I loved about and the reason I wanted to republish this book that I love about what Jeff did was he didn't say so because we don't have we don't have factual correlation of these events um, does that mean then that it's all a, you know, a nonsense uh, that's all a great lie in some way that we're being, you know, the walls being pulled over our eyes in some way that we're being kidded or um, it's a, just a giant con, um, which, you know, human nature tends to assume when, when something isn't necessarily proven to be, you know, a factual event. Uh, and what he, the conclusion he came to was that he said, I think I've found a greater treasure. <laughs> I think I've actually discovered something that is completely missing uh, in our modern era because of science and the progress of science and um, how we've adopted a scientific mind and approach to life is that actually um, going back as far as, as, you, as you can go, really, the, all the great mysteries, all the great truths, all of the great treasures of human thought and so on are contained in story. And that these stories um, at the time, and the, as far as the people are concerned, and particularly um, the earliest sources that we, we have been able to find around the potential uh, original stories of, 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 a, of a Christ, of a, of a Christ person or a Jesus in that part of the world, um, which was uh, owned by a group called the Gnostics, and, and he, he, Jeff goes in and explains quite a bit about who the Gnostics were, um, linked in some ways to the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls yeah. and so on. And there was um, quite a variety who, of them. I found that interesting. There's uh, quite a number of different Gnostic sects he, he talks about. Yes, and then the Essenes as well, you know, following on from the Gnostics. Um, for them, there, 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 there was a mis mystical Christ. Um, and... Uh, the name Jesus in various forms was sort of associated with that notion of a mystical Christ. In other words, you know, in, in the universe itself, in the order of things in the universe, then there is a, within that, that structure, um, in, in that imaginary world of, of the spirit, as it were, um, there is there is this person who is the son of God, this S-U-N, son of God, um, which mirrors and follows very closely um, old Egyptian myths around Isis and and, and other gods uh, in, in the Egyptian mythology and also in Greek mythology um, and also in Buddhist um, mythology as well. Deep, close comparisons with all of these. And so what Jeff was really, I think Jeff is really saying here 
is that there is something actually more important potentially uh, to be discovered in the greatest story ever told in in the Gospels, um, and that the original Gospel writers, in his point of, from his point of view, the jury is out whether they actually believed they were writing a factual account, or whether they were perpetuating and refining and coagulating uh, what they saw to be the most important parts of a deeper mythology and truth. And that um, for people to be able to digest it and to be able to make use of it in their daily lives, then they needed to record it and record it um, around um, a certain focus on a particular character who they who ended up being called Jesus. Um, I mean, that would be that would be a pattern um, found throughout time, throughout cultures, is to have the the kind of hero stories, creator stories that give people a, a, a sense of understanding of how the world works, their place in the world, how to live a good life. You know, that's universal exactly. um, trait. Yeah, so. exactly. So so he does question. If he has a bias, <laughs> I mean, we all have bias. So, I mean, if, um, I think the bias that Jeff probably brings to the book, which is... Um, quite common and I you know I, I hear people expressing the same bias in a way is that um, why then if 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 this is such a great truth and it is some mythological truth why then does the church in our most recent times particularly why then is there in this insistence on the on the his, you know, historical Jesus why is there insistence on the, the factualness of the virgin birth, why is there insistence on the factualness of, of the resurrection um, and all of the events that, that took place in between? Um, you know, why are we required as children and, and growing you know, in our early days, uh, why are, are we, we taught this in a way that it's true, factually mm. true? Because you know, his concern is that does, doesn't this do more harm than good are we have we lost have we lost something in our modern spirituality have we have we lost the the understanding that Carl Jung tried to emphasize of course quite a bit and got him into deep water uh, with the church in particular which is that actually one of the most powerful things about human spirituality is our active imagination and that our imagination is is not frivolous. It's it's not to be ignored. It's not something that's um, dangerous. Um, it just needs channeling. And if we can, and in a way, what what I think Jeff is trying to say, based on on his discoveries, is that if we are prepared to use the Bible and the the work of the of the New Testament writers and so on. Um, as just a, another imaginary channel to try and find um, important truths and important lessons for life, and as you said, the purpose of life, and so on, then we're getting much closer. If we can do that, we're getting much closer to where um, human spirituality was around two thousand, three thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would um, use the word imagination, and I, I would probably replace that with experience. For me, it is the the 
the direct spiritual experience that is the profound, you know, is, is, is what touches us profoundly as individuals and helps us, uh, can help us on our, you know, in, our, in manage our life. Uh, I think in accordance with our own inner guidance and, and so on. And I, that's, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, um, that I thought, uh, you know, reading this book made me see Christianity as essentially uh, arising out of a form of shamanism that, you know, then is growing. And what I meant by that is when I was reading that, Hmm. (laughs) I was reminded um, of my own work here in Aboriginal Australia and how really every mob has its own shaman. Um, Hmm. They're just everywhere, right? Like uh, traditionally, (laughs) certainly today, less so but you still find plenty of um um usually here usually the term is used traditional healers but there are people that have transformative spiritual experiences um Mm. following Mm. quite a set pattern which including Mm. often involves a period of of death the period where they Mm. are a prolonged period where they're unconscious and they're reborn they get revived uh with this new found abilities um which of course has interesting analogies to the to the Christian story. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. um and it is part of uh, it is just part of the culture, and you find it all over the place. And these people are regarded as significant, um, uh, and some have more powers than others. But um, it's also just part of everyday life. And other people can also experience some of the the things that shamans can experience. Like other people can also have communications with spirits or travel out of the body but not in the same sort of scale and then reading reading this book um you know and he, the uh, jeff talks about all the different uh, traditions that come together and there's the egyptian mystery traditions and then there's the buddhists that come and uh he mentions apoliano uh, apoliano de tiana and some other uh, people that were around at the time, a bit after or a bit before um, the Jesus time frame, but that yeah. were also regarded as, as what, the wandering sages and, and, and healers and so on was a, a feature of the culture. Uh, sure. And um, I guess it, you know, it was shown to people that it was accessible to have these experiences. And for whatever reason, and I guess that's that's a question that we probably won't really know the answer necessarily, but for whatever reason, this this particular story that got turned into the Bible mm. came to dominate and um but has as part one of its one of its features has been disconnecting people from personal experience, having a priest mediate the personal experience for us, um discouraging people often. Um, over the centuries, millennia, from having their direct experiences mm-hmm. uh, with God or with spirit mm-hmm. of any description, um, and so when you're asking before about you know why why do why is the church place so much emphasis on the historical or the historical elements, mm-hmm. I wonder whether there's an aspect to it that having us believe a story is part of a control mechanism. That's become almost sure. unconscious. I don't know that you know every person that goes into church as a priest and so on is going in there thinking, "I want to control the masses and I want to control people's minds." I don't think that's no. what people motivates people, but it's actually part of the culture of um, organized religion. 
that's just yeah i agree you know i i agree and and it has extremes everything lives on a spectrum in my experience and Mm. um when i read this book i immediately thought of of the state of religion in north america and uh africa and parts of south america as well uh and asia of course so so extreme expressions of exactly what you just described so when when religion goes beyond the point of being an individual personal uh experience of 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 another you know of the other of 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 the greater reality of who we are um and becomes uh a, a controlled uh, experience that is, you know, and the people who represent that um, are in charge, and we have to, you know, once we start having to obey them and follow the rules and so on, um, you know, that's when, you know, certainly for a lot of people in the US right now, uh, particularly those that have grown up in, in the Southern Bible Belt regions, uh, some of whom I know. Um, and in fact, the guy who wrote the uh, forward, who I invited actually to write the forward to the new edition, um, a guy called Dean Wilkinson, um, he, he came out of that very oppressive culture mm. um, long before he read this book. But, you know, Dean was a pastor you know, in, a, in a fundamentalist you know, Bible church. And um, it was it was a. A, a nagging wisdom within him that wouldn't let him go that, that began to question, you know, do you, do you really, do you really support this team? Is this, mm. is this really what you want for your life? Because everybody he knew was, was in this involved in this you know, church, um, the, the neighborhood, the town, the politics. I mean, it's a complete culture. You know, it comes in a fully contained box and uh, and and he said what 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 led him out of it was actually reading the bible <laughs> he actually started to read the gospels that he claimed you know to follow and believe in and then he, and and the more he read and the more he studied and the more books he got to try and help him uh, you know all respected theologians and so on um the worse it got because the more, the more he realized that actually um, this thing called the Bible completely contradicts itself. Um, it actually, you know, teaches against itself, and it actually has chrono- chronology that, that totally contradicts itself. And um, and the more he came away from, it, the more he began to find that actually, what he was beginning to be drawn to in the person of Jesus, in particular was a sense of, of the individual divine within within himself. And that led him on and uh, out into uh, a much broader sense of spirituality. And now he's a, a terrific um, leader encouraging young people who coming out of that, that church background to, um, to find Jesus for themselves you know free free of all the constraints of what any what any brand of, of christianity might try and impose upon them um and some of them but but he's no still longer... focused on jesus he's not uh, he's not saying find your own spirituality it's 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 sort of a no i was just going to say and if that leads you away from jesus that's fine the thing about having been raised in such a strong mythology 
the Christian mythology is that it, it you know, for many people, it's really hard to 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 get a, to to move away completely from from the Jesus um, that um, has meant so much to you. And so what he's saying is that you know, just guys, it's okay. You know, the church doesn't own Jesus. Um, there is a Jesus for you. Who is Jesus for you? And and if it leads you away from Jesus, and to, you you find other expressions of it, that that's fine. Um, but don't feel that you've got to relinquish um, any attempt of, of finding spirituality outside of the church. Mm. You know, you, you don't have to. You don't. <laughs> you can still find spirituality in the truth of of the Christian gospels without having to be part of the church. So it because it's a delicate, delicate matter. Um and of course if we if we're gonna talk possibly we should talk a little bit about Carl Jung as well, because he had a lot to say um on the topic of mythology and, and he too was raised of course in a Christian uh, Christian home. His father was a was a Lutheran minister um his his mother was a, a spiritualist so a real mixture right um yeah be in interested in your take on on carl how, how, how you see carl jung relating to this and you mentioned him before and i know he he came up when we spoke about alchemy as well so yeah of course he, you've, you've obviously spent a fair bit of time with his with his work yeah i, I yeah i have i'm halfway through an ma in jungian studies so it's sort of front and center of my mind at the moment I mean, what he he went so far as to say that um, you know, um, of all the modern th- mythologies that dominate um, Western civilization, and Christianity is probably the one um, because it, people are raised in it at school, people are raised in it in the home, people our culture, you know, the the holy days and the high days, you know, the, the feasts that we celebrate are all Christian, so you know, it, it stays front and center. His big criticism of Christian theology. I mean, he would say, well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter whether he Jesus existed or or didn't, because um, just the fact that the mythology is still around means that it has control over people's psyche. So, you know, whether you, the, the facts are irrelevant almost. It's uh, he would he would just go straight for the mythology and say, well, the mythology of Christianity dominates Western psyche to such an extent that we have to deal with it. Um, some people are fortunate enough to be able to break free of that, and that's that's fine, and can find it, you know, in other traditions, uh, spirituality spirituality elsewhere, which is great. But he said, you know, so many people can't break free of it; it's too entrenched in the, the thing. So, what are we going to do with it? And um, one of the big issues that uh, Young had with with the Christian faith, in particular was that it, it's failure to address evil. Um, it's failure to address evil within human nature in a, in a const- what he believed was a constructive and uh, a positive way. Yeah, I was going to so, say, because they address, Christianity does address evil quite um, obsessively in some, from, from one perspective. Yes, and it puts it all on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you. <laughs> you were born evil, number one. Yeah. Um, you are the one that's disobeyed a God who's never who's never committed any evil at all. And uh, so Carl Jung really went to, to task with that and said, this is a flawed theology. Seriously, guys, you really, this is something you've got to get sorted out. Otherwise, you will just see the death of your religion. 
because it doesn't stack up. First of all, he said the the the, the God of the Old Testament um, was was probably one of the most brutal beings around. He was slaying and sleuthing and plaguing and you know doing this and sacrificing and blood, 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 blood. You know, and the whole thing. And and he wrote a Carl Jung wrote a fabulous uh, essay called Job's Answer to God, which is genuinely worth a, a read. Not the easiest thing to read in the world, but he said essentially. Sorry, can you just you know, remind, repeat that name? Job's answer. Yeah, to God? Job's answer to God. Job's Job's answer to God. Job in the, from the Old yeah. Testament. Yeah, mm -hmm. Job in the Old Testament, and Job turned around to God and said, "You're the problem," and it's true. So, you know, Job said, I am righteous. You can, you can try and threaten me till the cows come home, but I am not budging on this, God. I am righteous. I have done nothing. You cannot blame me at all. Have you looked at yourself lately? <laughs> have, you, have you looked at who you are and what you've done? And so... One of the things that um, Carl Jung was you know, labelled a heretic, of course, uh, but one of the things he proposed is that one of the meanings, one of the most purposeful meanings of the the crucifixion of Christ as the Son of God is that you know finally God is is owning His own evil, because Job turned really basically said to God, the only reason evil in the, is in the world is because you let it be there in the first place. So if you want to point the finger at anybody, God, point it at yourself. And so for, for Carl Jung, one of the things that he uh, wanted to, to sort of understand was that maybe the, uh, the real value in the theology of the, of the crucifixion, uh, the sacrifice of the Son of God on behalf of not the sins of the world, but for sin, including God's invention of sin god's allowance of sin and so on in other words finally you know god owned up and took responsibility for what he had created you know theologically yeah <laughs> so can i just check uh, with that 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 god that you just talk about there is a very it's a, it's a very personified um patriarchal being personified that, you know, yeah yeah in the mythology in the so mythology was that was that jung's so this is this was this jung's belief or is he just treating no. that as a mythological narrative so his his so if you want to understand you just got to go we just got intellectually we've just got to go another little step if we may where there's always another the thing with Jung is, is he's always urging us to take the next step so in for young um he said that we all have a myth. We, the human psyche requires of itself that it believes something. It can be anything. Um, and we either believe it unconsciously or we make the effort to find out what it is that we believe. Um, and he, he said that is part of the road to enlightenment. Part of the road to self-awareness is understanding the, the, myth, the myth that we actually are. And he asked himself one day, he said, you know, what, what is the myth I believe? What, what does it actually believe about myself? Um, and why did he say that? Because he believed that the, 
the psyche, which is divided into the conscious self and the unconscious self. Um, the unconscious self is very chaotic, and, and as we know from our dream lives, uh, it's full of contradictions and chaos and uh, primal urges that are pretty scary at times as well, almost evil at times. Um, and so, how does how does the uh, how does the psyche manage? What's it, how does how is the psyche managed to exist with itself when all this is going on? And he said. Um, it has this natural mechanism which is called myth. So we actually create story, and the psyche searches for story, is always looking for story to find some form and shape and order to this, this chaotic state of, of the human existence. And he said that, you know, out of that, those stories, out of those mythologies, certain personifications arise and it can be krishna it can be buddha it can be christ it can be any number of deities various deities multiple deities but over over the millennia um, this is where these come from um, so in Jungian thinking um, the existence of mythology serves a psychological purpose uh, in our lives now i can hear people saying well you know, I didn't grow up with Christianity. I didn't grow up with any, you know, I didn't study Greek mythology. I didn't, you know, I don't have any myths. I, I can't think for a moment um, any external myths. That I, and, and so Young would say, no, they don't even need to be external. You actually believe things about yourself, about who you are, about your purpose in life, you know, whether you're married or not married, whether you're gay or not gay, whether you... Um, whether you're intellectual or non-intellectual, you know, whether you're cool or whether you're not cool, um, doesn't matter what you think, but we do believe things about ourselves. Of course Absolutely. I mean, it's like uh, that, at the beginning, uh, before we started recording, and you asked me what I would might be doing if I wasn't doing yeah, what I'm, yeah. you know, if I hadn't ended up in Australia and was working uh, as an anthropologist here, what would I be doing? And... Uh, that is an int that's that points directly to the story I then have about my life trajectory and yeah. how it couldn't have been any other way because of all these different factors. Yeah. Um, and you could say I'm just making sense of the many crossroads that were there and why I took that one rather than that one and so on um, in my own narrative about my life. Well, Young, Young would say if you don't do that, if you don't do what you've done, um, Kim, then... Um, then, then you're uh, missing a trick in life. That part of what makes life makes sense of life, what makes life purposeful, the mistakes we make as much as the successes that we have, um, they all go together to make our, you know, our story. Our, and in the case of uh, the alchemist by Paolo Coelho, of course, he calls it your personal legend. Um, same thing. So personal legend, your personal myth, your personal destiny. Um, Carl Jung would simply say that um, just understanding that and being aware of that is is part of, of, of being fully human, that we're not truly fully living life that is that, we, that, that, that is the potential of our own psyche unless unless we are 
aware of our own story. Now, you know, some people say, well, is that fate then? You know, do we just accept our fate and that's our story? And I just, you know, whatever happens, case there are, will be, will be, and I've got no control. I don't have to make any decisions or anything. You know, um, no, you know, um, we, we're very much in control. You know, he would, you know, Carl Jung was very quick to say, we're not the product of our past. Um, we're not just the the the, the, con- the consequences of our past choices. I mean, they will have influence, but right now, here now, you know, you can have you have choices, and you have choices about your own story. You have choices about what your life may look like next or not look like next, and so on. Um, and if you're a, the more aware you are of the influences of the uh, what he called archetypes, in particular, the the energies that rise up out of the unconscious self that influence the conscious life that, that we live. Um, so that, you know, our desire to be so, you know, super helpful or our desire to be super clever or our desire to be, um, you know, one up on everybody else in some way or to be wiser than other people or, you know, to be competitive or not to be competitive. So all of those are energies that come up and, and, become personified in our society and in ourselves. So when we almost hero worship a sporting legend, um, you know, we, we, there's a group <laughs> a group archetypal personification going on there. You know, the, these things are part of culture and they're part of life and so on. And, and most people, 99% of, of the species, um, are completely unconscious of any of this, that any of this is the fact. And... Um, so for me personally, um, the the Jungian approach to understanding mythology and archetypes and the the role of our own personal story has has been incredibly enriching for me and and partly for me going back to the age of eighteen, which was a few years ago, um, you know I did have an encounter because of the cultural mythology that I was raised in, which was Christian. You know, I did have an encounter with um, uh, a personification of love, which was Jesus. But it was very much an out-of-body, very much um, a sort of kundalini now, you know, comparing it to other spiritual experiences that people have had. It was very much a kundalini. I mean, my problem was growing up for the next 20, 30 years, having had that experience, was to make, make it fit the Christian thing into the mold that you were given, as it were, exactly. Yeah, and it just didn't fit, you know. And it was like a square peg in a round hole, you know. Uh, didn't didn't fit, and um, took me an awful, you know, much longer than I wished it actually had mm. for me to to. You know, and I have to thank authors like Joseph Campbell and Professor Carl Young and and some others to who who just kind of opened a new door to under to understanding. Uh, how I had been influenced by one particular myth, but I didn't have to be prisoner to that myth. I didn't have to be uh, committed to it for the rest of my life in order to to retain my sanity. I could, yeah, you know, I could go well, quietly crazy in another direction. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I think it's good to um, acknowledge that uh, even if. For example, I I was uh, you know not raised with any religious um, influences by my parents, but um, most I, I think just about anybody who's grown up in in a Western European country, 
the US, Canada, whatever your family background, the Jesus story is right there. It's in all our culture. It's in all our background. Mm -hmm. um, and it surfaces sometimes in surprising ways, like which is when people um, uh, in their later life who've never had a big interest in Christianity suddenly have conversion experiences, right, and, and, mm -hmm. um, and so yep. on. So I think it would be nice to go back um, and maybe just touch on some of the key influences uh, that um, Jeff's book identifies that flow into Christianity and that actually shaped the the Christian mythology. So we see, you know, what 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 were the different influences are, and I, I guess the key ones that stood out for me were the the Egyptian, uh, but also the Buddhist ones, which I'd mm. heard about at different times, and and I've certainly heard about the idea of. Um, if there was a historical person called Jesus that he traveled to India. And I know there are places mm. in India, um, different temples where they, people say this is where he came and this is yeah. where he learned. Um, uh, yeah. But maybe talk a bit about, about those, those, you know, the, the yeah, core things um, that stand out for you. Yeah. Well, actually the way I found the book um, was looking, going down the Buddhist route. Um, I studied theology as part of my quest to get out of Christianity, if you like, uh, Orthodox Christianity. I studied theology independently, and I discovered, and those of you that have any scant knowledge of, of modern Christian theology will know there is a, a movement that believes that there is a, 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 a lost source, that there is one particular um May it may have been in written form, but it was certainly in verbal form, uh, which uh, a lot of European theologians call Q, the letter Q, um, and that this Q stands for source. It's German. It's a German for source, and um, that this had some sort of Buddhist root. Uh, in other words, if you if you're a st student of just a a basic student of, of Buddhism, you know that the Beatitudes of the of the three Synoptic Gospels, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, um, blessed are those you know who do good and, and so on and so on. Um, these are very Buddhist, these have got real strong Buddhist uh, basis to them. Uh, and hence, you know, people think that Jesus you know, went to India discovered some of this stuff and came back and then stood, stood up on a hill in Nazareth and said, you know, blessed are, you know, and, you know, love your enemies. You know, I've, I've been to India and I thought, I think this is a really good idea. So do this. Um, and love he, was bringing the, he was bringing the enthusiasm of the recently converted back to. Yeah, uh, back yeah, to yes, exactly. Well, it's a nice thought. It's a nice part of the myth, but it's probably has no basis whatsoever the bit that, that really caught my attention and really you know wanted me to to re-promote this book was that I stumbled across a, a Danish professor of Sanskrit so Sanskrit text is the ancient Buddhist um, text ancient Indian texts ancient religious texts uh, that are kept in scrolls from thousands of years um, and he made his lifetime study um, and academic work to translate ancient um, Sanskrit texts. And um, he had always had some 
uh, knowledge, back sort of vague. He said he told me uh, I wish had several really great conversations he passed recently. So is this is this so Christian he, Lintner? Yes, yeah, it's Christian Lintner in in yeah. the book. Yeah, and he said, uh, look, you know, um, I was given some some scrolls about ten years ago, uh, which had been discovered deep in a monastery somewhere, and they'd been carbon dated and so on. They were over, well over two thousand years old. And um, he was asked, would he translate them into Danish and English and so on, which he, he commenced doing. Um, and it was it was to his shock and his immense surprise that he began to recognize some of the stories um, around Buddha, and uh, but also other characters related to Buddha, so certain names and certain situations and places which rang familiar, but he couldn't work out where he'd heard them. Because uh, mm. he was he, he didn't come from a Christian background and he wasn't a Christian scholar, so he didn't automatically assume that. And then he did just you know start flipping open the New Testament, <coughs> excuse me, in Danish, and then discovered that there were some similarities, uh, which were not just similarities. It, it was almost like plagiarism. Yeah, it was it was that strong, you know. That, so that got his attention. So he went off and studied Greek. So he, he studied ancient Greek, translated the Greek New Testament for himself, okay. didn't want to rely on anybody else. And lo and behold, the same pentameter, the same storylines, the similar character names and so on. It's all, all in Jeff's book. He, yeah. he really and so now I'm curious, uh, Colm, because you said you learned this directly from Christian yeah. Lintner. Did you add this to the book? As, uh, as, no, as no, the Jeff, editor or, or Jeff Roberts had already me and Jeff, yes, me, Jeff, and a few other guys actually found Christian Lindner. Jeff happened to be one. So I when I said to Christian, you know, we should publish this, he said, Well, you do know about Jeff's book, you know, Jeff recently passed. And right. I said, No, he said, Well, you should have a look at Jeff's book, and that's what brought me to, to Jeff's book. And so okay. you know, that was my motivation initially to to get the book out there. Um, I am talking to uh, Christian Lindner's son at the moment encouraging him to publish his father's work um this particular part of his father's work in, in more detail and more academic coverage in in english uh, but ha <clears throat> having said that um one, one of the lovely little stories just i'll just add this as as an aside um uh, christian lintner submitted his findings in a pretty academic little paper uh, to one of the more liberal Christian theological colleges in Denmark. And he was invited to speak at a, at a convention that was being held to look at new insights into Q, into the source of the, of the New Testament. And um, he was one of the last speakers, um, not a theologian, not part of that tradition. And he stood up and he just began to uh, read out in Danish, um, some of these passages, and, and there were lots of nodding going on. Oh, oh, you know, well, this is interesting. Uh, yes, yes. You know, have, have you found a, a new, you know, a new source of Q? And he said, um, "Well, if any of you had actually bothered to learn Sanskrit, um, you, you'd be able to read this in its original Sanskrit form, and it comes from these documents." And he presented the documents and. Um, and he said, so how, how long have you guys been studying Q? And the source, because it's like 50, 60 years, these guys are getting paid to, to do this stuff. And he said, well, 
may I humbly recommend that you all go away and learn Sanskrit, <laughs> ancient Sanskrit, and that you bury yourselves because he said, my life's nearly over and I don't think I can, you know, I can only, I'm not a theologian. I, I'm not bringing this to you from any theological point of view. I'm just bringing it to you to make you aware that some may be the source that you're, you say you think you're, you're, you exist and about, it's actually in Buddhist, ancient Buddhist Sanskrit. That might be your source. And you, you should seriously consider that. And um, by the end of his uh, session, there were only three people left in the room. Right. Caused some offence to the... M major offence, yeah. yeah. Because I mean, basically what he was insinuating was that the early gospel writers were potentially Buddhists that had mixed with um, uh, Jewish, you know, uh, Jewish scholars, Gnostics, Essenes, and that the and the I mean his his idea isn't that far fetched. And certainly Jeff sort of follows it that in a way, two thousand years ago in the Middle East, it was a real melting pot. There is not a just a trade and ideas but religion as well it was a real melting yeah. pot of religion you know and there and is a mention there is a mention of a group called therapeutia therapeutia mm. in the book which there's some suggestion that they um were a buddhist or influenced by buddhism um yeah i mean i'm, I'm reading another book called silk roads a uh, fabulous um piece of, of huge academic uh, history which essentially the, 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 the author of that book is saying the same thing he said that you know that we we think that civilizations lived in isolation and that you know everything was original to that little pocket yeah. of civilization he said no <laughs> not, not not at all you know they didn't have the internet okay they didn't have you know uh, shared scholars traveling the world but People were on the move all the time and invading each other yeah. and mixing and intermarrying and, and so and on. You know, you get your DNA done and it's a real eye opener. You know, you really are a pea soup. <laughs> yes. Of, and the other thing that we, I think, have a we, we view history through the lens of um, at least a thousand years of religious uh, based disputes within Europe and of different yep. sects having to dominate other sects and only this is the truth and that is not the truth and these sort yep. of silos whereas um, uh, if we look at old again looking at indigenous cultures at least and I'm, I think that's what we're look, really looking at back in the mm -hmm. in you know, 2000, 3000 years ago in that, in that area um, there was trade in new religious insights there was trade yes. in ceremonies people yes. um, took great pride in knowing and being having being having the ability to um, understand and have integrated different songs ceremonies mm. knowledges from different groups far-flung groups all around that's what defined aboriginal uh, you know religion and it makes a lot of sense to me that back 2000 years ago as you described People from India would come, learn something new in the Middle East. The Middle East and people would learn something new from India, go through the, down to Africa, come, you know, all, all over yeah, the place. China, Africa, things. the whole, yeah, the whole kit. Yeah, absolutely. Share sacred objects. 
Um, which plays into Carl Jung's core theory, which is that all of this, from the beginning of time, the beginning of civilization, all of this emanates from within the human psyche, that um, all of the mythology and all its complexity and, and all of its detail and all of the intricacies of the storytelling and and uh, all of the structures, the political, the religious political structures that get built, you know, around world religions in particular, um, both on a, on a macro scale, but also as you you know often see in North America on real little local micro scales, scarily in you know the control that comes up. You said this is just all part of of, of human nature. It, it 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 emanates, and the um, the only danger comes in, in from his point of view is when we think, when the psyche sort of tricks itself and says this has been divinely sent from somewhere else. Because the moment it starts to become divinely sent in this particular form from some from, from a greater authority outside of ourselves then that's when it starts to get a bit tricky because if that is the case, who are you to question that particular version? Who are you to question that particular version's leadership? Who are you? You know, um, and you know, Young was was solid on this that that you should question it, and that the psyche is built to question it. That's the whole point. And that what the psyche is looking for, what what is is to find the individual divine. That 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 one of the archetypes of of the psyche that we all have in our DNA is to find that personal sense of the divine, that personal sense of connection with the universe, that personal sense of connection with ourselves. And that also, you know, that personal sense of unity with with the rest of the species, and and that that is a core archetype. You know, that you, so that's the journey of, back, of, of individuation, I suppose you could say, right? That was that was his mythology. Yeah. So yeah. If he had a religion, that that was his religion. Yeah, which is interesting <laughs> yeah. when. To, I guess as I'm like I I agree that that is a, a deep drive on the one hand, but it, to me it seems like there is as, as part of human history there is this this struggle or conflict between that and uh, the strong tendency to uh, to somehow see ourselves as being under some divine or somehow a uh, you know corporate rule system that binds us as a community and sets mm -hmm. our our um uh sets our rules for life like that struggle again you know i always come back to the indigenous lens so in indigenous cultures mm. um the law was very much is very much seen as being handed down by the ancestral beings and right. you don't you don't question it as a as a human, you mm. you operate within that parameter, um, and you know what we're talking about before about the Christian Church, but that seems to be, in a way, how the 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 church in general operates. Here's the dogma mm. we operate underneath it, 
And the individuation drive tends to lead to conflict, doesn't it? It tends to lead to people Ooh, who yeah. become heretics, who are exercised, who are thrown out of the community. Yep, um, guilty yeah. as charged. <laughs> so it's a, it's an interesting tension that we all need to juggle. Uh, I think when we tr when we're following our own, um, you know, following our own inner calling and our own uh, guidance. In the yes. And 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 um, just referencing one last time. I mean, he he would acknowledge that he he would say, um, just as there is the uh, collective unconscious, there is the collective conscious as well. Um, but and living within that, you've got a couple of choices. You can you can buy into it um, because you've got to live in it, um, and you can either be a reformer. If you feel it's not perfect, so you can become a reformer within it, or you can become complicit with it. Um, but that tent, but it will set up a tension, um, and a part of the individuation process is learning how to handle that tension with the collective um, consciousness as well. I mean, there are certain periods in history in certain places; it exists all the time in all cultures, I believe. But sometimes it comes to a head. So for the case of Nazi Germany, you know, it came to a head where individuals were personally had to challenge themselves. Am I going to, you know, roll with the collective conscious at this point or am I going to, um, you know, buck, buck the trend? Um, is, is it more important for my own soul's sake to to not, you know, become complicit in that, um, you know, I feel sorry for people who, um, who you know, live in in cities where there are two major football teams. <laughs> you know, if you live grow up in Manchester in England, you know, you, you know, you've got a couple of real issues that you got Manchester United and Manchester City, for example, um, and you kind of have to join a tribe, <laughs> and you have to, you know, so what's going to influence your choice of the tribe? Is it your neighbourhood? Is it your family background? Is it your favourite footballers? I mean, what you know? I mean, I know that's a very simplistic, but it it, it is it's very real in in some communities. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of passion around around those questions. Yeah, <laughs> just just got to remember it's a sport. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was that? What was that world. famous quote? Uh, football is not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. I can't remember. <laughs> yes. I, can't, I was a. a I don't know who said that. It was a good coach one. that said that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a religion of Australia. Yeah, have we got a religion in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. It's called sport. Yeah. I was like, this is actually in English. I was thinking about English. I was thinking about soccer. There. There's an English, an English uh, soccer player who said. That. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so um, to go back to the book, sort of draw a few conclusions. Yes. Um, about the book, um, who who would benefit from it? Um, I think anyone who wants um, uh, a really good sort of shortcut, a Reader's Digest sort of shortcut guide to um, a couple of centuries of theological study. Um, it does that really well, um, and uh, be, let's not be mistaken here. I mean, some of the greatest critics 
of the literal interpretation of the Bible have, have actually come within, you know, theologians themselves uh, and saying, you know, we're missing a trick here. Um, our obsession with the historical Jesus is potentially led, you know, leading us in completely the wrong direction. And that if we're prepared to revisit the Bible with a, with you know different spiritual glasses, um, looking for the, for the deeper meaning, um, and then definitely that will help people get get a grip of that. Um, Will it destroy anybody's faith? I don't know. No, I don't think so. Um, uh, I know plenty of people who are so committed, faithful to the historical Jesus. Uh, you know, it's faith. Nothing's going to... Well, I think you have raffle. to be open enough to even read this book, right? Um, yeah, uh, you, yeah. Th those uh, people... My, my sense would be it would, it, would, yeah. it would attract people who um, have... Have have religious have a strong religious had a strong religious upbringing and sort of conditioning, but are questioning and doubting. Yeah, and they're looking for some yeah. answers. Um, I think if you're still solid and comfortable in your faith, you wouldn't even think about it. Um, mm -hmm. For me, no. it was valuable. You know, I I mean, I'm not. Uh, uh, I don't have strong feelings about. Her. I don't have a problem with her being an historical Jesus. So the other thing that I no. was thinking of, when you're reading all these parallels, um, you know, Dionysus, the Horus story, these all Isis, these, yeah, uh, yeah, Isis, um, these stories that you could say, well, this is like the Jesus story, and this is like the Jesus story, and maybe they borrowed the story right from here or from there, mm. or it influenced mm. it, or, and as you say, it could just be a, a deep myth. Uh, like it's got it's got a it, it touches us there's something about this story that touches us and yeah. gives us some understanding but the other alternative is that i was thinking of all well, there are certain patterns of spiritual experience there is this pattern of people um uh you know dying for better words mm -hmm. you know kind of being death, unconscious death for a while self, and being yeah, reborn yeah. with spiritual powers yeah. uh Maybe there was just a bunch of these people around, you know, and Jesus was one of them. That's uh, the, the the Jesus figure who who became idolized for some reason. Um, he was, you know, one of the, the many shamans that populated mm -hmm. that area. Either way, it doesn't really, yeah. it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really matter. No, Jeff, you know, Jeff, Jeff entertains that in his book as well. I mean, he says if the, if there potentially was a character somewhere, that this is loosely based on then it probably was a guy um an, an early gnostic character there are references with early gnostic writings to a guy who would could vaguely you know fit fit that pattern um i think one of the most challenging things for anybody who is a who is a, a committed christian even in a liberal sense is uh the revisitation of of st paul re-looking re at St. Paul, uh, his beliefs and his teachings and, and the gospel according to St. Paul, because right. he kind of is the fifth gospel in a way, um, which, and although he never met Jesus, you know, he never claimed to have met Jesus physically, and he and his, his gospel um, was developed independently of the um, so-called, you know, prime disciples of Peter mm. and Matthew and Mark and so on, and James, the brother of, of Jesus, uh, 
in in the story um completely independently you know on the road that you know the, his road to damascus experience is legendary of course um the blinding light uh, the voice from heaven um sort of that personal trans instantaneous transformation which wasn't dissimilar to my own experience but um uh, so you know that uh that spiritual experience which he interpreted into the gospel of jesus is fascinating because it actually exists sort of independently over here from from the the rest of the of the gospels and and the, and the new testament and um and paul's influence on the final uh, manifestation of, of the historic christian church uh, as it as it came out through through rome and so on um that that is always a, a great source of interest to me i think as a phenomena that that's that, that you know scholars have put a lot of effort into it, trying to understand you know what that's all about as well so yeah jeff covers that and mm. um and explains the influences of paul on how how we view jesus in that sense and and then you know what do you think or what does jeff think would be the purpose if if the book isn't if there was no actual historical jesus um mm. what was the purpose of compiling these stories in in this way from jeff's point of view mm. Uh, the truth yeah and me as well yeah no i think well, I, mean, so I, I, mean, I, I mean compiling compiling the why would why did the people whoever compiled the bible when yes. they did why, why oh, did they, yeah why did they um why would they i think that? for the reasons that we touched on earlier around i think people um of all ages of all persuasions of all origins um, there is just the, this human need to try and find something that is definitive enough to uh, to bring the you know a sense of purpose to our existence, and that if that requires us to believe in some principles, um, some truths uh, that transcend just even our own simple existence. So for me, the thing that, that has held me and did hold me for so long within the Christian faith per se is predominantly the teachings about love, the, the teachings of Jesus around love. Um, love one another as I have loved you. Of you know, one commandment I give you, which fulfills all the other commandments. Forget all the other rules, all the other commandments. If you just need one thing to remember, can you please try and love one another as I have loved you? Can you do that? Um, if you do that, then you're fulfilling all of the other demands of religion and whatever your religion might be. And I think you know that is one of the things, one of the sort of redeeming, rallying points for many many people outside of the christian faith that, that enables them to have some sympathy towards the christian faith is that this absoluteness of the teaching of the importance of, of uncon you know, unconditional love and, and one of the things that one of the great bits of writing attributed to saint paul of course is in his letter to supposed letter to the corinthians 
where he defines unconditional love, um, which is beyond the normal, the default human response to uh, aggression, uh, to to selfishness. To the, so he, he essentially... What St. Paul said in the end of the day is that if Jesus brought us anything, if he if he taught us one thing in particular, it is that one of the greatest purposes of, of being human is to love beyond oneself, to find compassion and empathy and to want to do good for no reason, for no purpose for yourself. If you can do that, then immediately you're lining up with lots of other religions as well. But if you could do that, and if you want to take anything away from the purpose of bringing together the, the early mythology that is Jesus, then uh, just based on my own personal reaction to it, it would have to be that, mm. that um, you know, love divine you know, was embodied in a man. And if we need to personify it, if, if we need there to be a Jesus that, that lived that and the stories in the New Testament help us envisage that and they encourage us to live selfless lives in the interests of others, then then you have a religion. You know, there, right there, you, you have a religion. So the, the cross and the, and the buildings and the authority structures and the the rituals and the ceremonies and, and and all of that and the worship of the Pope and whoever else. Yeah. Um, and the abuse that then happened in the name of this religion. And then the, supposedly based uh, on let's get on to the abuse, yeah, and yeah. then the abuse. Um, you know, blessings to, to all the victims. Um, you know, where does it go wrong? You know, where does how how does something so devout and so well for me personally I have to go back to to Kowian for the answer to that which is why you know I can't stay just within the Christian confine you know Kowian would say that without looking at evil without looking at uh, Mercurius in alchemy without understanding the the base nature of, of of the human existence and and the, the counterposition that ha that has with the Christ. So in the end, what Carl Jung said was that that alchemy is the an, antithesis, but also the antidote to Christianity. That the, the, they represent two sides of human nature. So there is the sense of the divine, the, patri the patriarchal divine, the Son of God coming down from above, but there is also the, the Sophia energy, the earth energy, which is less controllable, less um, uh, less divine, more earthy. It's the Caliban of, of, of the Tempest. It's the, the Merlin of the Arthurian legend. It's the Mercurius of the... Um, and in the end, well, you know, when Carl Jung was nearing the end of his life, after his heart attack, actually... Uh, he had a really good, really close near-death experience. Um, he he built a tower, a mercurial uh, alchemistic tower on the lake, on Lake Geneva, and um, 
he spent he used to dress like a, an ancient alchemist and he carved features it's you google it it's fascinating right. fascinating experience that he went through and devoted his entire life to the study of alchemy at the end there pretty much he'd appear out occasionally and do interviews and see clients and so on but his own private life his own personal internal life he was completely absorbed in alchemy and he and one of the things he wanted to carve on the stone was the cry of merlin because uh, the cry of merlin um in the Arthurian legends, in in the uh, alchemistic legends, uh, Merlin represents the base side of of the human psyche, the bit that we would rather not think about, the the bit that will abuse, the bit that will murder, the the bit that will commit cruelty, the bit that will uh, seek its own um, selfish ends beyond anything else, and and you know. Young said, and unless you can, unless you can, well, this was his struggle. His personal struggle was bringing those two parts of of his nature together. And he said, the problem, the problem I have with Christianity, as I said earlier, is that it doesn't address, in a in a creative way, the the baseness of being human. You can't just keep pushing it away. You can't keep putting it back into hell. You can't. That's how keep you create monsters, isn't it? You, you just make things worse. Yeah. You're just going to make things worse. And he said, look at the church. If you want an example, then look at the church leadership. You know, yeah, there you go. Um, deny people their sexuality. Um, give them authority over others in a way that they can, you know, give them, put them in positions of being able to easily abuse others. What are they going to do? They're going to do it. Of course, it's, they're human. Um and uh, and he said that that's the great challenge. He said that is the challenge of the mm. the church has got got to accept alchemy. I mean, he he got pretty specific about it. He said you've got to. So why does alchemy still exist? Why did alchemy you know, rise up in antipathy of, of Christianity th through the last two thousand years? Why why did it retain its early origins from ancient Egypt? Um, why were there so many alchemists during, say, the Tudor period and the Reformation? Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, had her own alchemist, John Dee. Why? You know, why was she so committed to astrology? Why was she so committed to these occult arts mm. and so on? Because people were still trying to come to, 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 to terms and to grips with the two sides of human nature. Because that's all they do represent. They do represent... You know, the problem with human nature is though it's not a clear dividing line. <laughs> you know, if we could draw a line down our middle, you know, on my on my original book, you know, my book cover, I've got the, you know, the face with the line through the middle, the conscious and the unconscious. So if that was a clearly defined line, we'd all be, you know, in a bed of roses. <laughs> it, it ain't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, bits creep in, bits chaotic bits creep in. At moments that we least want them to, and you know, we've got choices all the time. We can suppress them, we can condemn them, or we can uh, embrace them, accept them. So, one of the things that unconditional love, in my thinking, the one thing I've brought from Christianity with me into my alchemy is that the one 
absorbing uh, container with which I can see my life is that actually I am, in the end of the day, I am loved. I am, you know, the bits, even the bits that I can't accept about myself are acceptable. They are, and it, it's okay. Um, and in the acceptance is the freedom. In the acceptance is the release from their power. Um, and it doesn't make me holy, but it makes me holy. Yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> Big difference, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and some people do it naturally. We've meet, we meet them every day, do we not? You know, some people just get it. Don't need to study. Don't need to, <laughs> you know, do all the belly buttoning that I have to do to get to this point. So, well, I don't know. So, I you never know the people's story. I think I think most people who reached the state of wholeness in one way or another mm. have done a lot of work over there. And if they haven't yeah. done it in this life, they did in the previous life. Otherwise, they wouldn't be. Ah, there, there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's the secret yeah. <laughs> all right i'll remember that if, if it's possible in the next time around <laughs> <laughs> so colin tell us um so the true origins of jesus by mm -hmm. jeff roberts that's i'm guessing that's available at all the usual spots if people are interested in following it yeah up. you can buy it anywhere yeah angus and robertson if you don't like amazon or your local bookshop yeah sure um it can be ordered pretty and much everywhere. what about yourself what are you doing these days you've got your podcast uh um, I haven't been podcasting. Actually, I, um, what happened was that I started my Jungian studies, uh, my master's um, at Essex University, and that kind of took over <laughs> yeah. a, a big chunk of my life. So I, I put that on hold. I was editing the book. Um, I've run a couple of events in Glastonbury um, recently, um, which if you go to my website, comholland.com, you can see I've been, I've been doing. I've been getting up to all sorts of tricks um in the meantime um my my long-term project um i guess is to um i don't know what it's going to look like but i think um I, I want to produce probably it will come out of my dissertation is um i actually want to um think in terms of the therapeutic relevance of mythology um, I guess yeah. because of the influence of discovering the alchemist, you know, which is a piece of mythology. Yeah. It's a piece of, you know, one man's creative bit of mythology, which encapsulates so many great elements. And that is why I wrote The Secret of the Ogre. But what I'm finding more and more as I work with people in a therapeutic environment, um, the, um, the container of, of mythology um, in and of itself has it can have immense um, therapeutic benefits. And I guess the First Nation Australians have been doing this uh, for, for tens well, of thousands yeah, of it's, years. It's, it's <laughs> interesting to look at cultures that have built their entire um, uh, life, social structures are on mythology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so we have, a, we have a new mythology, and it's called Method Medicine. Which is which is great, partly influenced by several alchemists of the 17th and 18th centuries, um, to do with hygiene and and how the human body you know works, but um, and the whole concept that the human body can actually heal itself that that's an alchem an alchemical principle <laughs> mm. right there in in and of itself. Um, so uh, yes, I think in the 
in the psychological uh, realm, in the, the realm of psychological wholeness, um, I want to pursue a bit more of an understanding of, of how asking ourselves the simple question of, well, what is my story? What do I actually believe about myself? Uh, and am I even aware that I'm actually living out a story that I've created? And is it a tragedy? Is it actually helping me? Is it full of too much illusion? Am I, you know, kidding myself to my own self-harm, as it were? Uh, but using story and the, and the building of, of our own story as a therapeutic uh, process. Yeah, uh, yeah, something I, I, I want to get a bit more into. Yeah, that seems great. Yeah. <laughs> so otherwise, keeping busy. <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Colm. I really um, appreciate this opportunity to. Kim, it's always a pleasure talking to you. You as... are, you know, you bring your own insights. It's great. So well, really, and as you know, really I, I, um, it's funny. Our interaction has been a little bit about uh, my resistance to talking about <laughs> things Christianity, and then you kind of bring it up and say, "Hey, what about this angle? What about that angle?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it is. I do think it is. It is such a remarkable story the fact that this um that this story the, the you know the jesus story has defined our era in such a big way mm. it's it's a it's mm. remarkable and it is worth exploring so yeah i appreciate mm. you bringing that uh, this little contribution to that exploration yeah it's it's a little piece of our own story and uh even just understanding its role can can free us as well if you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, please take a few moments to leave a positive review on Apple Podcast and share it on social media to help others find it. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes for this episode, including any links to their work and their contact details. This podcast is a labor of love. If you want to support me and get some practical info for your own exploration of consciousness, you can purchase my book, Multidimensional Evolution, from Amazon and other online bookshops. Or if you want to support your local bookstore, which I encourage, you will have to order it in. You can check out my blog on multidimensionalevolution.com, where I write about all kinds of topics relating to multidimensionality and our evolution um, that just pique my interest at different times. Finally, get in touch via email or on the Multidimensional Evolution Facebook page. Whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics, I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I'm sending you my very best energies. The tune seeing us out is called Akasha from Finnish fusion artist Axel Tesla.